Well, we're continuing our series in the uh, book of Acts, and it's Acts to the Ends of the Earth, and, uh, and, and this week we're reading Acts chapter 9 to 10, so the goal is whatever uh, weekend we're, uh, that we're on, that chapter we're going to read throughout the week. So Acts chapters 9 and 10 are our uh, passages this week. And, uh, and it's a way for us to stay in the Word, and it's also a way for us to continue to connect with the message and to fill in some of the blanks, because obviously we can't cover everything in just the 25 or so minutes that we have here. Um, but, but last week, Pastor Danny talked about the first Christian martyr, and the first Christian martyr's name was Stephen, and, and when Stephen was executed, there was a young man, a Pharisee, come you know, at the, at the uh, event there and given his approval at his execution, and his name was Saul. Now in Acts chapter 9, we have this massive turning point, not only in Christian history, but I would say in world history because of the influence that this event had on the entire world. Because if it wasn't for this event, who knows how everything else would have played out. But the beauty is that God is in charge and he uses different events, uh, unexpected events, to further his kingdom and to bring him glory. So let's see what happens in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 3, uh, 1 to 13 or so, we read this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes... He could see nothing, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Fresh on the mind of Saul was the execution of Stephen. The road from Damascus to Jerusalem, if you could visualize a map, was a seven-day journey, about 150 miles, 140 miles from, from, from these two cities. Seven-day journey. What was fresh on his mind was the execution, because if, you, if we remember from last week, that, that, that Saul gave his approval to what was going on. And when he gave his approval to what was going on, he saw Stephen's face, shine like that of an angel. 
So he had seven days to think about what was going on. Why in the world, if this man was a sinner, why in the world, if this man was anti-God, would God come upon him in such a powerful way? So he's probably running this in his mind. And for the seven-day journey, you got to remember, in this culture, it was this hierarchical culture. It was a honor-shame culture. It was Saul at the top of the food chain, and it was his guards that were with him kind of in the middle of the food chain. But there wouldn't have been conversations walking from one from Jerusalem to Damascus. There wouldn't have been much conversations because they wouldn't have felt worthy to talk to Saul. So for seven days, he's in his thoughts. And then what happens is the Lord meets him in a unique way, in a way that changed everything. Now here's how I imagine the story. I don't know if it went like this, but this here's how I imagine it. That, that, that Saul is walking, and a big light shines like this. And all of a sudden, he goes blind. And he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See? This is how it really happened. You didn't know they had, like, a video recording in iPhones back then, did you? They did. And then Saul says... Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, oh, and different. I will show you what to do. And then the light went off. And then Saul opened his eyes like this, but couldn't see anything. He was blind. They took him by the hand, and they led him to Damascus in, in, a, uh, in, a, in, in a house there. And there for three days, the Bible tells us, he stayed there. He didn't have food, and he didn't have drink for three days. Well, during this time, there was a, a disciple by the name of Ananias. Not the same Ananias that we read about in Acts chapter 4. Uh, this was a different Ananias. And the Lord spoke to Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. And it was this vision that Ananias received. I want you to go to Saul, because I have a job for you, Ananias. A specific job that God gave Ananias to go to Saul. Ananias obeyed, but I could only imagine that as Ananias is on his way to Saul, he's probably thinking, this is the guy that killed Stephen. This is the guy who is coming into Damascus to kill Christians, to to, to, to arrest Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem. And I'm supposed to go and talk to him about the Lord? But he was faithful to God. And he wanted to honor what God told him. So he went all the way to where Saul was. The, the street was called Straight Street because it went straight through the city. <laughs> Clever, I know. And it went straight through the city. And he comes to Saul. And here's how he greets Saul. The murderer, the Pharisee, the one everyone's afraid of, the one Jesus just had a massive encounter with. He says, Brother Saul. Not murderer Saul, not foreigner Saul, not Saul, I don't want anything to do with you, but he says, Brother Saul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he, regra- he regained his strength. Imagine the confusion. Saul was coming to extradite all the believers back to Jerusalem. But yet, the Lord in a vision told Ananias, go to Saul, because I have plans for Saul. Saul also had another name, and that name was Paul. It was often common for uh, uh, um, um, temple Jews to have two names, a common name and more of a formal name. So it wasn't that Saul's name changed to Paul. It was that he eventually started going by the name of Paul because everyone knew that Saul was the murderer. So he figured, let's go by Paul. We'll have more influence and be able to connect with more people that way. But, but imagine the confusion there. God gave him this vision and said, go, and he's going, and he went to him. And then all of a sudden, Paul, or Saul rather, starts preaching to people in Damascus. Then they end up in Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where the apostles are a little leery of what's going on. In Acts chapter 9, verse 26 to 30, when Saul came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them. And moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea Philippi and sent him off to Tarsus. He went to Jerusalem. All the apostles were there. And Barnabas, or rather Saul, is, is pleading his case. He says, no. I met the Lord on the way to Damascus, and I realized that this Jesus that we crucified was the one who, who, who is the Messiah. Now I see that. But the disciples are thinking to themselves, this is all a ruse. This is all make-believe. This is a trick. Because once he infiltrates us, he's going to have all the intel he needs to go and eradicate all of us but one disciple stood up for him and it was Barnabas Barnabas whose name means son of encouragement the same Barnabas we learned about a few weeks ago before Ananias and Sapphira he was at the end of chapter four I think it was where he gave his land sold his land that's where we first learned about Barnabas he sold his land gave all the money to the apostles Barnabas gets up and he vouches for this guy. He puts his own credibility on the line for this man who was a murderer, for this man who was trying to kill believers, for this man who was trying to throw more believers in prison, for this man who Jesus met and changed his life. Barnabas put his name, his reputation on the line. 
So the name Son of Encouragement is very appropriate. And if it wasn't for Barnabas, what would have happened to the person of Saul, Paul, and the New Testament? He wrote, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. The majority of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote. And so, and so Barnabas stood up for him, and, and he vouched for him. But, but let's just take a little side note for a second, and let's process that. In our lives, are we like Barnabas? Do we believe in people? Do we speak life into people, or do we find everything wrong about people? Are we the type of people who say, I believe in you? Are we the type of people who say, I, what you did with that person, God was definitely in that, and there's a smile on the Lord's face? Are we the type of people who look for the good in people? Or are we the type of people who look for all the negative in people? Barnabas was somebody that everyone wanted to be around. Barnabas was the person everyone wanted to be around. Why? Because when others left Barnabas, they were lifted up and they were encouraged. Are we that type of people? Are we the type of people that people want to be around us because they leave better, they leave encouraged? Doesn't mean they're perfect. Nobody's perfect. We're not perfect. But, but do people want to be around us because we encourage and lift them up? Or, or would people avoid us? Let's you and I be like Barnabas. And regardless if we've had this past of negativity in our lives, let's start fresh today and make the declaration that I'm going to be like Barnabas and I'm going to encourage people and I'm going to, I'm going to speak life into people. I'm going to let them know I appreciate them. I'm going to let them know I care about them, whether that's by telling them in person writing them a note, messaging them on, on, on social media, whatever it is, but letting people know that you value and you care about them. Barnabas put his reputation on the line for Saul, and it made all the difference. I look back at a few people in my life that if they didn't believe in me in the way that they did, I don't know what my life would have turned out to have been. Let's you and I be the people who speak life into people encourage others and build them up let's stop looking at the flaws and let's look at the potential that we see so Saul has this conversion experience where the Lord just comes like in a massive way like the light comes down he's blind and it's a massive conversion experience and let me just say a note about that sometimes we hear other people where they have this testimony where where it's so extreme they're like and I was going to kill like somebody and I was going to kill myself and my and then the Lord came and they and he saved me and those are amazing and powerful and influential testimonies but what about everyone else over here whose testimony is I've just kind of always believed in God, and I've always loved God. One thing we've got to be careful to, to not do is to compare our lives with others, to compare how people came to the Lord. If someone has this um, over-the-top, like, like, big testimony, praise God for that. If you have a story of you're like, the Lord has just been in my life, and I've just known he's there, praise God for that. Our job is not to compare. Our job is to be faithful in everything that we do every single minute of the day. And so then, then Saul, after Saul's conversion, then in chapter 10 of Acts, we, we're brought back to Peter, the apostle Peter. 
And in chapter 10, we learn about this man by the name of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Let's read this. Chapter 10, verses uh, 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Peter and Cornelius, as we're about to find out, have another epic turning point in Christian history that changes the, 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 the way things had always been done. Like, like massively change things that have always been done. And so let's figure out who Cornelius was for a second. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. What that meant was he had 150 troops or so underneath his command. So in today's language, that would be like a, uh, a commanding officer overseeing a company of troops, something of that sort. That's roughly what it would be like. Caesarea Philippi was the, the city where only the best of the best of the best would serve there because this was a central city for Rome in terms of the trade routes going from here and there and all these different cities. And if you didn't have this city solid and secure and safe, Rome then would end up losing out on money. So they only sent their best troops and their best commanders and their best leaders to Caesarea. Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was somebody who respected and loved God, was trying to get to know God. He didn't fully become a Jew, but he had respect for the God of the Hebrews. He was a generous man. And we find out that Cornelius was a person of prayer. So Peter, the apostle Peter, the same one that got out of the boat when Jesus was on the water, the same one who in Acts chapter 2 spoke up at Pentecost and said, here's what's happening, this Peter, right? This Peter is at a, 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 at a man's house named Simon the Tanner. So you have one, you have Simon Peter at this person's house named Simon the Tanner. Now the Tanner was somebody's, what is, was his occupation. You know what a Tanner was? Had nothing to do with like fake and bake. <laughs> Had nothing to do with like the spray tan, <laughs> you know, like, like what I do, just kidding. And uh, um, <laughs> imagine that in Hawaii, spray tan, I don't think that's even a business here. But, um, but, but, but si Simon the Tanner worked with dead animals. So he was like a mortician for animals. And, and I don't know how popular that was of a profession, but somebody had to do it, and he did it. And I think it's like Leviticus 19 or something. If everyone just read all the most unique laws of the, of the Old Testament, read the book of Leviticus, and you'll find out all these different laws. I think it's Leviticus 19. It says, if you are a tanner, you will be unclean for the rest of your life. The rest of your life. But I think what's happening is that God is working in the life of Simon Peter because Simon Peter is at the house of someone who's unclean. And if you are a Jewish believer trying to find to live by the kosher laws, you're not going to be next to somebody who's unclean. So I think that God is already working on his heart because in the passage we're going to read in a second, it, it, it says that Simon Peter is on the roof of his house. That might sound weird that somebody's on the roof of somebody's house. 
If someone was on the roof of your house, you'd be calling the police. You're like, get off my roof. But it was common in that day that you'd go on the roof, got a nice breeze going out. The roof was flat. There were stairs going up to it. You might remember the story of the person who was paralyzed, and they dug a hole in the roof and all that because the house were made out of, of mud, and uh, they lowered them down, that type of deal. That's the same, same idea there. So, one, one other note about unclean and clean. The Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites, they're all synonyms. They were supposed to receive God's blessing and take God's blessing to others. That, that, that's what their goal was. That's what God charged them to do. But they didn't do that. Instead, what happened over time was they started getting this, like this, like this. You like this? You like this? And they're like, I'm the chosen one. And you're just a Gentile. I'm the one that God, the creator of all things, the one who has always been, chose. You over there, God has not chosen. And so what has happened is this divide started growing and growing and growing and growing to by the time of the day of Jesus, it was common for Jewish people to have this type of sentiment that if a Gentile woman, that's anyone who's not a Jew, is giving birth, you shouldn't help her. Because if you help her, you're bringing in and helping to bring in another Gentile to the world. Do you see the racism going on? Do you see the, the hierarchy? Like, we're the Jews, and you're, you're, you know, you're not even worthy of my time. This was the type of sentiment that was going on in this day and age. So, an angel of the Lord came to Cornelius, this Roman centurion. And he said to Cornelius, remember Cornelius was a man of prayer? He says, your prayers have been answered. Then the angel said, send men to Joppa, where there's a man by the name of Simon Peter, staying with Simon Tanner. So, so Cornelius sent his men to get Peter. They go and get Peter. And as Peter is going as they're on the way to get Peter, Peter falls into this trance, the Bible says, like this vision. And in this vision, he sees all sorts of different things going on. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9, here's what we read. About noon the following day, so it's lunchtime. At noon the following day, as they were on the journey and approaching the city, Peter went on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. The Jews had a lot of restrictions on their diets. 
It wasn't that just that they couldn't eat pork, but they couldn't eat all sorts of animals. And if you read, like I said, like in Leviticus, it talks to you about all these different dietary restrictions that they had. And there was all a reason for the different things they could and couldn't eat. And so Peter's getting hungry. And then in this, in this trance, in this vision, the Lord's saying, hey, here you go. Eat all this food. There's some good food up in here. I mean, I can think in Hawaii, I think we'd be like horrible Hebrews and Jews because we like to eat everything here. I mean, we wouldn't, anyways, so uh, stick to the script, Brian. All right, so what happened was, th- th- this was a turning point. This turning point here could not, cannot be overstated. While he's having this vision, the vision ends, then the, the Cornelius troops come to his door, knock on the door, Peter goes with Cornelius and his, tr- not Cornelius' troops back to where Cornelius is, and Peter's walking to his house. And he's probably processing everything. What just happened? What is going on? Wait, Cornelius had an angel and then I had a vision. He's probably processing all this stuff. And then the moment of, of, of like reckoning or whatever phrase one use comes when he gets to the house of Cornelius, this, this, this centurion, this Roman soldier. And he has a moment to choose. Am I going to go inside the house? Or am I going to stay outside the house? What was happening in that vision is all these foods were unclean. You don't eat them. The Jews didn't eat them. And God is saying, no, there's a new way of things now. There's a new covenant. The old way is done. The new way is here. And here is what I want you to do. And, and this is something that, that, like I said, cannot be overstated. Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, and he walks through the door. Not only does he walk through the door, but he sits down, and he eats with Cornelius. This is the first time Peter has ever had a meal with a Gentile. The first time. This is the first time any Jew of that standing, like like Peter was, had a meal with somebody who was not a Jew. And what they do, they eat, they drink, they talk story, they talk life. And then Peter tells Cornelius about Jesus. Peter explains to Cornelius that the Messiah is Jesus and that all the Hebrew scriptures point to Jesus. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, we read this, all the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, And here's the huge turning point. Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. That is, they, those who weren't chosen, so to speak, have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. 
God, the Holy Spirit, was there, consumed everyone in there. The Jewish believers, the non-Jewish believers, the Holy Spirit came upon all people. This was a turning point in, in Christian history, in world history, because now Peter is making it clear to Cornelius and others through the power of the Holy Spirit that God doesn't show favoritism, that, that God does not show any type of favoritism at all. That, that the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, the love that God has is for all people, all ethnicities, for men, for women, all nationalities. And, 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 and God had to get that through clearly to Peter, and that's exactly what he did. Working on his heart, working on his heart, and then bam, with this big vision coming, saying, all these foods you thought were unclean, no, they're not unclean anymore, they're They're clean. And he goes into a house of someone's that he never would have stepped in in a million years. But the Holy Spirit empowered him and says, no, go and eat with this man. What a powerful message of the cross changing everything. Powerful message that God wants all nationalities, all ethnicities, men and women, into his kingdom. That one group is not better than any other group. There's no like hierarchy, like, 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 you know, like I'm not better than anybody else here. I'm the lead pastor or lead pastor <laughs> or senior pastor. It doesn't matter. I'm really the lead servant. I'm not better than anybody. That's the message of the cross. We're not better than anybody. The message of the cross is that we were saved by God's grace. That's how much he loves us. We are loved so much by God, and so now we could go and, and live for God and live a life that brings him honor. And then they were all baptized. Again, they were baptized. Again, they were baptized. Again, they were baptized. All throughout the book of Acts, they believed in the Lord Jesus. Then they were baptized. Baptism is an expression of our faith that, of our faith that Jesus died and rose again. So we go underwater telling people that we're dying to our old life. We come up out of the water telling people that we're coming to our brand new life. This life that is fulfilled, this life that is new, and this life that we're living for Jesus. We're reenacting what Jesus did. That's what they did. When we follow Jesus and obey Jesus, God shows up in mighty ways. As the band comes, I want us to think about a few thoughts here. Just like Ananias, let's be faithful to God's calling. God had a specific job for Ananias. What, what is God calling you to? What has God put on your heart right now that you're saying, you know, I've been neglecting this area. Or, or I've been neglecting this, this person or these people. Or I haven't been showing love to these people over there. Whatever it is, what is God placing on your heart that, that, that now it's time to address and say, okay, Lord, I want to listen and I want to live that out. And though Saul's conversion was radical, that does not take away from any other conversions that is not as extreme as Saul's or anybody else's you hear. In these passages, we also learn that God desires for all of us to come and know his son, Jesus. And if that's the case, he wants us all to know Jesus. 
Who can we talk to this week about Jesus? What type of conversations can we have with those about faith? How can we leave the door open for these conversations of faith to happen? God wants all people, all ethnicities to come and to know him. And in these passages, we learn that God does not show favoritism. Nobody's better than anybody because we're all sinners saved by the love of God, saved by the cross. And it's because of the cross you and I have eternal life. And I think overarching in all these passages, the big theme is this. And I think there's a number of people here who just need to hear this again. And here it is. God loves you. God loves you. The creator of the universe who came to earth to live this perfect life did it because he loves you. You might feel like nobody loves you. You might feel like you're unlovable. You might feel like, like, like you're an outcast. You might feel like you have nothing to offer. But God loves you. And may we never, ever forget that. And my prayer is this. That the Lord will impress on our hearts the truth of his love. And we may not only know it in our minds, but we'll be able to experience it in our heart and soul every single day. Amen.